parables and turn, but before we get to Matthew chapter 25, I need you to turn back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 22. The reason for that is because there is something at the end of the text that we looked at, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe three, but I think it was two weeks ago, that is always, well, no, I shouldn't say always, for a long time was a real puzzlement to me. And while there are still many places in Scripture that I have to lovingly say to you that I am searching as well as you are, I came to a point several years ago in my life where all of a sudden, Matthew 22, verse 40, excuse me, verse 14, came alive for me. It actually happened one day when I received in the mail one of those wonderful envelopes that I'm sure you've gotten. You've already been approved for a loan up to $30,000. Hot dog, I could use that thirty grand. That would be awesome. And you open it up, and here's your special number. Just log on and we'll send your check right out. And you put in that number and you give them all your information and two days later, you get a letter in the mail. Dear Mr. Neal, we regret to inform you that your request for loan has been denied. Why, why, why? You said I'd already been pre-approved. I was invited to take this loan, and now you're telling me I can't have it. They said, well, it was subject to approval by our board. And uh, they looked at your credit record, and after laughing for several minutes, they decided to send you this very gracious letter saying, you will not be receiving a loan from us. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, the words of the master himself at the end of that wonderful story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago about the story the parable of the marriage and the man who came in but he didn't have the proper garment the garment that had been distributed to all those who had been invited and yet he didn't think it was important enough to wear that garment so he came in dressed in his normal street clothes and the host of the banquet says friend who let you in dressed like that and he was cast out. And then in verse 14, the text tells us Jesus' words. For many are invited, but few are chosen. That is a hard saying. That is a hard concept for us to grasp if we do not understand the meaning behind the words of being invited and being chosen. This is not going to be a summary of Reformed theology and the doctrine of divine election. Because we have come to conclusions as a church family that whether we believe that God chooses by his own divine fiat, those who will be saved and those who will not, or whether God is designed by his design or decided by his divine fiat that everyone who repents and believes the gospel will be saved, which might be synonymous phrases, by the way, we know that in the end it's God that does the saving and not we ourselves. But this phrase is hard. Because how would you receive an invitation and then show up and be told that you didn't qualify? I thought you invited me. Is this some kind of bait and switch? I mean, what's the deal here? Well, our passage today will help us answer that question. I really believe it will. So now let's turn over a couple of pages in your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. And let's see what we can learn about being invited and being chosen. In this story, we basically have, if I say three characters, really it's one character, 
one set of five and another set of five. So basically three different groups. We have the bridegroom, we have the ten sensible bridesmaids or virgins, and then the ten foolish ones. And I want us this morning over the next few minutes to talk about what this parable has to say, what Jesus is trying to teach, and how we can apply it into our lives. This is another one of those cases where we're going to talk about make sure your position with Christ is what it should be. And I will say again in one sentence, if you are truly a child of God, there is nothing that I can say to sway you from that confidence. If you are not certain about your relationship with God, no comfort I can give you will keep you from being uncertain. So what I'm about to say, hopefully by the leadership of God's Holy Spirit, will only serve to enhance where you see your relationship with God today. So with that end in mind, I want to show you three lessons that we can learn that will help clear up our confusion. First, let's look at the bridegroom. Let me read again for us the first six verses. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Notice, first of all, that this is now phrased in the future tense. A lot of the kingdom parables, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this or this or this or this. But this obviously is something looking toward the future. The kingdom of God will be like this at some point in the future. So Jesus is now talking about the time when the bridegroom comes. And by the way, don't forget what we've talked about with parables. We cannot extrapolate from a parable other characters that aren't there. Well, who's the bride in this story? We don't know. There's no bride in this story. And we know, obviously, if you've got a bridegroom, you've got a bride. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the relationship between the bridegroom and these maids who had been chosen to light the path from the bride's home back to the groom's home after the wedding, had been, the wedding ceremony had been finished. And so the bridegroom, Jesus says, this is going to be what it will be like. Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish, five were sensible. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take olive oil with them, but the sensible ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. Since the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, here's the groom, come out to meet There's a lesson that we learn from the bridegroom, and here it is on the screen behind me. Here it is on the screen behind me. There it is. The bridegroom, with his unusually long delay and his unexpected time of appearing, teaches us that predicting when Jesus will return is profitless, pointless, useless. You see, this parable, if it teaches us nothing else, teaches us that there is no way that we can know when the groom will arrive. So stop trying to figure it out, okay, will you? Anybody still have a copy of Late Great Planet Earth on your shelf at home? I tell you the surety, Jesus Christ will return in 1976, Hal Lindsey said. And what amazes me is the boy's still writing books today and people are still buying them. I'm not trying to make fun of Hal Lindsey. But there is this obsession with trying to figure out when is Jesus coming back. And my question is, why? Why are we so obsessed with figuring out something that Jesus himself doesn't know? If you were in Bible study this morning, you saw that verse in chapter 24 when he said, even the Son doesn't know when he's going to return. 
Only the Father knows. It was Sir Francis Bacon, the creator of Bacon, so we should all give him a big word of thanks. Amen. Sir Francis Bacon who said, it was the desire for power that made the angels fall, but it was the desire for knowledge that made mankind fall. It was the tree of knowledge that Eve wanted more than obedience to God, and that satanically inspired desire that we must gain knowledge over things that we are not meant to know is the thing that drives us away from Christ, not toward him. But a humble seeking of the knowledge that God gives us through his word and by the inspiration and leadership of his Holy Spirit is what brings us light. So the bridegroom teaches us in this parable that trying to prognosticate Trying to determine when Christ will return is a pointless exercise. Please, listen to me. Every generation has signs in it that could point to Christ coming. You know why? Because no one knows when it's going to happen. Satan doesn't know, so guess what? There's always an antichrist in the wings because Satan wants to be ready. I'm not even sure if the Holy Spirit knows. It's not my place to say the Bible doesn't tell us. But I know that there, every generation, there are signs. There are wars and rumors of wars. You think we've got it bad. You remember, the, well, no, you don't remember. Remember hearing stories about World War I? Pearl Harbor? All the way back to the beginnings of history, there have always been signs that could lead to a seeing that Christ, so Christ could come at any time. Let's stop trying to figure it out and do what these wise virgins did. That's my second group. What do the wise virgins teach us? Well, the first thing they teach us is that they were obedient. They took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Now, I'm going to go ahead and set the stage for you now. When we get to the conclusion in a minute, I'm going to come back and help you understand the premise of being invited and chosen. Very typically in the ancient world, as I alluded a minute ago, when a marriage occurred, the event would occur at the home of the bride's father. They would go there, they would have the rabbi come, lead the service, pronounce them husband and wife, then there would be a procession from the bride's father's home to the groom's home as he formally takes his new wife home to be with him as his wife. And if any of you ever served as bridesmaids, young ladies, the origin of your role was they were to be the escorts of the bridal party. They didn't have groomsmen that I can see in what I've read in the history, but they had bridesmaids. Young unmarried girls who were given the task of coming with lamps ready to escort the bride and groom and the rest of the bridal party to the celebration that would happen in the groom's home. And they could also be a part of that. And so these Girls came with their lamps in their hands, ready to serve. All ten of them did. Notice that. And then in verse 4, we find out that the sensible ones, the wise ones, took oil in their flasks along with their lamps. Now, before I go too far with this, I need to just make a little point here. I don't think there is any... 
allegorical symbolism in the oil. It would be so easy if I said the oil represents salvation, but then you fall into a, a hole here because the unwise virgins had enough oil to at least light the fire, but they didn't bring enough to last. And so did they lose their salvation? Did they not have enough salvation? We could say that the oil is good works, I, but I think the better thing to do is just say the oil represents being prepared. Five of the girls were prepared for whatever may happen. The other five were not. And we're going to talk about why in just a minute. But these five girls, number one, they were obedient by coming and bringing, but they were more than just there for the party. They were there for the long haul. They were there no matter how long it might take for the ceremony to go. They were going to be ready. Because the Scripture tells us that in verse 5 that they all became drowsy and fell asleep. This doesn't represent them being lazy or lackadaisical. It's just it went on and on and on. They probably figured there's no way it's going to happen after midnight. He'll probably just wait and come tomorrow night, so we'll just take a nap. And be ready tomorrow morning to enjoy the celebration. But they were ready. They were prepared. And the thing that those five wise young ladies teach us is that preparation for Christ's parousia is rewarded with paradise. Now, what in the world is parousia? Anybody know what parousia is? That's the Greek word for Christ's coming. I just had to have another P to throw in there. I don't do alliteration very often. When I get a chance to do it, I just let it sizzle. The wise virgins teach that preparation for the return of Christ, preparation for seeing Christ is rewarded with paradise, or in this case, with the marriage feast and presence with the bridegroom. You see, these girls understood that this is about more than just going to a party. They understood that by being invited to be bridegrooms, they, I mean uh, bridesmaids, they had a responsibility. Very, very important job. If you've never been in a part of the world where there's no electricity, on a moonless night, you do not know what dark really is. I, I, I can promise you, you do not understand dark like that kind of dark. There is no ambient light. There is nothing but dark. So these girls were vitally important the role. And they understood that. And because of that, they knew they had to prepare themselves in order to be able to do the task that they had been given and do it well. And so these girls were smart enough to say, you know what? I know I've got my torch. This is probably what they're talking about. It's a special word here in the Greek. It's kind of like a torch that would be, have a rag around it that would be soaked in oil. And then they had another flask so they could add oil to it so that no matter when the groom came, they would be ready. Because they understood that they had a responsibility. They had a role to play. They weren't just invited to a party. They were invited to be there with the groom himself. Does that make sense? You remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? There's a second. First, yeah. When Paul says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then what does the next phrase say? And thus shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the blessing of salvation, is that we get to be with Christ, with Him. It's not about a place. It's about who's going to be in that place. It's not about where we're going. It's about with whom are we going. And so these girls understood that they wanted to be ready to meet the groom and the fact that they got to go with him to the party was wonderful. But the most important thing was the groom wants me to be there with him. And so I want to be ready for it. I want to be prepared. These girls represent those of us who have truly committed our lives to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said, I want you 
to be part of my family. I want you to let me be the Lord of your life. I want you to surrender your life to me because I know better than you do how best you can live your life. We said, yes, Lord, I'm making a mess of it. I cannot do it on my own. I need you. I surrender my life to you. Well, now we have the other five girls. And if you want to know about these other five girls, these foolish virgins, the best way to understand is to look at the answers that are given to them. You notice in verses 5 to 9, it says that the groom is delayed, they all became drowsy. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, here's the groom, come out to meet him. Then verse 7, in verse 7, it says they all got up and started to trim their lamps. The foolish ones who didn't bring any oil with them said to the sensible ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. And here's the word answered. The sensible ones answered, verse 9, no. There won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell and buy oil for your own selves. Now that sounds kind of selfish. Aren't we supposed to share with those in need? Aren't we supposed to give to others? Aren't we supposed to be kind and gracious and gentle? These girls sound kind of snarky to me. But you see, they understood they had a prior obligation. Their first responsibility was to be ready for the groom. And they understood if we give you some of our oil, all of our lamps will go out. We can't do that because we made a promise. You should have understood the responsibility that you have. It's not just responsibility of accepting the invitation. It's responsibility of preparing yourself. They weren't being mean. They were being honest. You see, this is something that we as evangelical believers understand absolutely, and especially, I believe, those of us in the Baptist branch of the family of God. And that is, this is an individual responsibility that every one of us must do for ourselves. You cannot ride on grandpa's piggyback. piggyback. You can't trust your parents' salvation or their faith for yours. It must be something that you do. You go and you prepare by being obedient to the call of Christ to, to take up your cross and follow him. And these girls did not do that. They said, oh, well, we'll just borrow some from the others when this time. It's no big deal. We're going to a party. Woo-hoo-hoo. Bought a special dress just for tonight. I'm excited. She said that. I didn't say that. Now, let's look at the second answer. Go on down into verse 10. They went by some. Groom arrived. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. There's that Lord, Lord. I mean, they even called him Master. They weren't lazy. They went out, and they found a shop that was open in the middle of the night, Woke up a storekeeper. We need some oil. But he replied, he answered, I assure you, I do not know you. Not I used to know you, but I don't know you anymore. I do not know you. I've never known you. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. How could, what do you mean he never not? He invited them. He invited them to come. How could he say now that he doesn't know them? I invite you to apply for this pre-approved loan. But you have a responsibility. I invite you to join me in this celebration, but there's a responsibility that you have to do. And if you aren't doing it, then I don't know you. I may have invited you, but obviously you have no desire to do for me what needed to be done in order to be able to come in to the party. Now be very careful with me here. Be very careful. I am not saying that faith plus works equals justification. 
But neither am I saying that a heartfelt profession plus nothing equals justification either. Nowhere in Scripture are we asked to invite Jesus into our hearts. The closest thing we get to it is Revelation 3.20. And Revelation 3.20 wasn't written to a person, it was written to a church that had gotten so secularized they had forgotten God. And Jesus is standing outside the door of the church knocking, saying, let me in. It wasn't written to lost people. Nowhere does it say that you're to accept Jesus. It says you are to surrender your life. You're to repent and believe in the gospel. And we know what believing in means. Talked about that just last Sunday. Believing in means putting your trust in Christ. Giving your life to him. I love Jesus paid it all. I love the tune. It's a gorgeous tune. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Hear that line? Jesus paid everything, and in response, we give him everything. This is how we can be invited to repent and believe the gospel. And think, oh, well, I can always do that stuff later. But I've heard now, so all I have to do is just tick the box whenever I'm ready. See, the problem with these girls is they wanted the bridegroom to come on their timetable. But he didn't. He came on his timetable. If you were in Bible study this morning, we talked about a wicked servant for whom the master came earlier than he thought. In this case, we have a master who came later than they thought. But these girls were foolish, and they didn't prepare. You've heard me say this in a dozen different ways over the last year. Let me say it as clearly as I know how. Faith in Christ plus nothing else equals justification and works and obedience and love and readiness. These are things that should naturally flow out of our lives as we surrender our lives to Christ in obedience to his call. But just to accept something with no sense of obligation to be prepared and to be living for him, Jesus paid it all. What do I owe him back? Everything. Everything. I was telling my class this morning, Sharon, I tell my class everything. Well, just about. Not everything, but just about. We're in the middle of Downton Abbey right now. We're finally to season six. For those of you that are Downton Abbey fans, I think one of the best typologies of a Christian is Mr. Bates. Mr. Bates is Lord Grantham's valet, or valet we would call him, but they call it valet in, in the UK, his personal man. And you see, Lord Grantham had known Bates back in the South African Wars. They had fought together, and Bates had been injured and had a bad leg, and no one thought, how could a man be a valet? Look at all the stairs in this house. Look at all the things he has to do. Look at all the luggage he has to carry. There's no way he can do that with a cane. But Lord Grantham said, no, 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 no. I want him to be my man. And Bates spent the rest of nine seasons, no, nine seasons, six seasons, however many seasons, six seasons of Downton Abbey being faithful to give back to Lord Grantham for what he had done for him. Now, that's not a perfect typology, okay? But you get the point. Jesus Christ found us floundering in the North Atlantic in the icy waters of the Titanic wreckage 
And he comes to us, he takes us out, he wraps us in the blanket of his righteousness. He gives us the hot steaming cup of salvation. And he says, you are now saved. What do we owe him in return for that? Everything. Everything. These girls didn't understand that. And so the thing we learn from these girls is that they teach us that too little preparation and too much presumption results in rejection. Oh, they weren't just unprepared. They were presumptuous. They thought, oh, well, we'll just skip the parade, which is the whole reason they were asked to begin with. Don't forget that. The reason they were invited was because they were going to light the path. Now the procession is over. They're in the party now, in the celebration. And now the girls think, well, we didn't do what we were supposed to do. We didn't obey what he told us to do. But we'll still get in because he's nice. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know. He's kind, and Jesus said, nope. Some of you know Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a poem about this parable. Hmm. Go figure. Called Late, Late, So Late. Let me just read it to you. It's very short. But listen, because Tennyson got it. Late, late, so late, and dark the night and chill. Late, late, so late, but we can enter still. Too late, too late, you cannot enter now. No light had we, for that we do repent, and learning this the bridegroom will relent. Too late, too late, you cannot enter now. No light, so late and dark and chill the night. Oh, let us in that we may find the light. Too late, too late, you cannot enter now have we not heard the bridegroom is so sweet oh let us in though late we'll kiss your feet no no too late you cannot enter now Tennyson got it figured out too late beloved I have no reason not to believe within the sound of my voice in this precise moment there are some of us here who a year ago or a dozen years ago or decades of years ago understood the call of Christ to repent and trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we have lived our lives as best we can knowing that we are sinners, relying on Christ, relying on God's leadership, relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us, and we are prepared. And we do not have to pray like some of us were taught as children. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. No, we can go to sleep and we can sleep and saw logs all night long because we know we are safe in Christ. But there are others of us who heard about an invitation to a party heard about an escape route from the punishment of our sin. With no sense of obligation to the one that sacrificed his life for us. No sense of need to give him anything in thankfulness and appreciation once we were adopted into the family. And we have lived maybe again decades with no change in our lives. No preparedness for his coming. Other than a few little self-indulged, self-directed, feeble efforts. And when the day comes and Christ returns, we will find that we were unprepared and we were presumptuous. We presumed upon the invitation that it would mean automatic acceptance. When we forgot, the invitation was to prepare. 
If that is you today, I beg you, I beg of you, repent and believe the gospel. I beg you to understand that just like me, when I first had that little gold booklet in my hands that said, just as there are laws that govern the physical universe, so also there are laws that govern the spiritual universe. The first law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I read through those four spiritual laws. And not saying it isn't in the tract, but the way it was presented to me was, you don't want to go to hell, do you? And suffer for all of eternity. Oh, no. Not what nine-year-old boy would say, well, yeah, I think I want to go to hell. No. I said, no, of course I don't. He said, well, if you'll pray this prayer, you can go to heaven. And I prayed that prayer. And for years, I thought that's all there is to it. And I wondered why I struggled so with my life. Until suddenly someone said, Steve, you don't understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. All you did was say that you believe a truth, but you never said that you believed in him. You never ever surrendered your life to him. You never committed yourself to being his follower. And explain, someone explained that to me. And thank God, thank God, I heard that message. And I was born from death to life, from self-striving to Christ-trusting. And if you're here today, and your entire eternity is dependent on a tear-filled profession that you made with absolutely no sense of obligation following that, I invite you today to begin that journey for becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And it starts by saying, Lord, I'm not exactly sure where I am with you right now, but I want you to know that I want to be your follower. I want to surrender my life to you. Jesus, I want you to be not just my Savior, but the Lord of my life. I'm asking you to forgive me, to cleanse me, save me and to guide me and if you are there if you have done that first of all you need to give god thanks for saving you and praise and then say and i want to be prepared every day we talked in bible study this morning about how many things can drag us away distractions of the world and other kinds of things we want to make sure we're focused so when christ returns we'll not have to say if only oh if only so wherever you are today, now is your moment. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for your grace. There are some of us in this room today, I fear, that put their trust in a human decision rather than a response to a divine command. There are some of us who foolishly have believed that just because we were invited, it meant that we would be welcomed without a commitment to obedience and a faithful life. We've misunderstood the security of the believer and the perseverance of the saints. And today, we've come to recognize the fact that it may very well be that our trust is not in you, but in ourselves. And may this be the moment, just like I had some 43 years ago. For some of us in this room to say, I surrender all, all to Jesus, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender.
for those of us, Father, who have and are striving with your help to live the surrendered life, we recommit ourselves. If there are things in our lives that have kept us away from you, if there are things in our lives that have distracted us from you, if there are things in our lives that have allured us away from being fully prepared, may we abandon those things even now as our heads are bowed. May we repent and turn back to you. Whatever we are dealing with this morning, I pray that we will find peace in Christ alone. For it's in Jesus' name.